good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking creepy lullabies. We're talking horrors and abominations. And we're talking another woman in a white ga- nightgown having a scary late-night hallway experience. And I'm Joe. <laughs> I'm Trace, and we're talking not one, but two very inappropriate kisses between a 40-year-old woman and a small child. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, because I knew that you would include something to do with a child, because I know how much you fucking hate nightmares children. So much. Yeah, I hate him so much. <laughs> uh, we are talking Jack Clayton's The Innocence, everybody, which I'm not going to lie, I didn't know until recently that this was an adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, so... Listeners, if y'all are coming to this like, what the fuck is this movie, Um, which it's a classic of horror cinema, so, you know, I should have known and so should all of you, (laughs) but this is an adaptation of uh, Henry James's The Turning of the Screw, which was adapted twice last year, once Mm -hmm. in The Turning with Mackenzie Davis and once as The Haunting of Bly Manor, the Netflix series. Yes, and one of those got very terrible reviews, and one of them we reviewed for Patreon, and it's a Mike Flanagan perfection piece. It very much is. So if you haven't listened to it, go subscribe to Patreon right now and uh, listen to that shit. Yeah, you can hear Trace (laughs) talk about how he cried. Oh my god, I cried so hard. I didn't cry in this movie because, honestly, I'm making fun of this. I, I actually think this is a very, very, very good movie. Mm-hmm. much like Diabolique and last year's Rebecca that we covered, it's a movie that you really have to put yourself in the time period. So I can see how this would be considered very scary. And there actually was one scare in this movie that like really chilled me to the bone. Ooh. But it's, it's you know, it, it, it's classy. It is, yeah. I was trying to like go through my notes and refrain from being like, it's classy, it's prestige, and... It's just really hard because so much about this film screams, hey, we took this shit really seriously. We put a lot of effort into making this look polished. So, you know, this isn't a slapdash horror film that somebody just threw together on a couple million dollars. It's like they did the work. I mean, I think it's amazing because when we discussed Rebecca back in October, it was something very similar. We talked about, oh, how they how they made Manderley look so big because they were mm-hmm. painting on the film because oh they were gosh. using matte paintings. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so much work. Like, I can't believe they had to do that. Yes. So people had to work so much harder back then to get movies. And we'll, we'll talk about in this film, too, the cinematography and how they got around Cinemascope. Mm-hmm. And I say that, I'm like, okay, well, I'm saying that as if, like, you know, oh, people today, they're so lazy with movies. It's not true making a movie takes a lot of work it's just a different kind of a lot of work yeah and i think in that episode we did talk and part of the reason we're reiterating this or bringing it back up is because we've seen the download numbers and a bunch of you motherfuckers have not listened to the rebecca episode (laughs) part of this is that you know modern films have digital ways of getting around some of this and it's a different kind of labor whereas here it's yeah it's a different kind of hands-on I did have a question for you, Joe, because I I think you actually were the one that programmed this initially. Do you have a reason why? 
So the main reason that this is in here is A, because it is a classic, and I knew that both of us <laughs> had not actually seen it. The other reason is because it has a queer screenwriter. So it technically falls under the parameters. But in terms of the timing of this, no, we just wanted a film from the 60s. We haven't talked about a lot of older films, so we thought, let's do an English older film. Let's get educational, everybody. <laughs> yes, all five of you come on a journey with us. Of course, the screenwriter in question is Truman Capote, um, world-famous novelist. Uh, if y'all have ever read In Cold Blood or Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, mm -hmm. among other things. I have a really weird, not weird, but an interesting relationship with Truman Capote. I had to, um, my freshman year of high school, um, one of our, basically we had to do a paper on an author and a book. And we had to pick one author and one book and write about how something in their life, like how their life or lifestyle influenced their writing. Okay. And by happenstance, like I just picked Truman Capote. I didn't know who he was. Oh, I know what it was because the book was called In Cold Blood. And I was like, that sounds good. <laughs> Let mm -hmm. me pick that one. Okay. Now, if everyone doesn't know, In Cold Blood is, of course, about this massacre that happened in Kansas in, uh, I want to say the 50s. And Truman Capote wrote, essentially, I mean, what was the equivalent of a modern-day, like, Netflix true crime series? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what the book In Cold Blood is. Like, he basically was in prison with these killers, talking to them, supposedly even developing feelings for one of them, as he's writing a book during their trial process. Basically, like, I learned he was gay, and I wrote about how his homosexuality influenced his writing of the book. Yes. And interestingly enough, I do think that that contributed to some of the criticisms about the writing and the romanticization of that main killer. Mm -hmm. And of course, folks, if you haven't seen it, I'll highly recommend one of the films that have been made about his life, which is, uh, I think it's just called Capote. It is called Capote. That's the one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I will say yeah. that the one with, where Sandra Bullock plays Harper Lee is, it's not as good as Capote, but it's it's watchable. Okay. Is that the one with, um, what's his name? I know, Toby, what's his name? <laughs> the guy from the MCU now, sadly. Um, yeah, that one's called Infamous, and it's Toby Jones as there we go. Truman Capote, but then you have uh, Sandra Bullock as Harper Lee, whereas in the Capote film with Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's uh, Catherine Keener as Harper Lee. All right, yes. That is such a weird friendship to me, but, uh, you yeah, know, cool for them. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know if it was ever confirmed that she was a lesbian or queer in some sort, but I think it was heavily suspected. Although some bibliophiles might have the correct answer on that. I do not. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, like, it was just one of those things where, like, you know, as as someone who was really in the next year about to come out of the closet, like having to write a paper on a gay man and how homosexuality and his queerness influenced his writing. It was just something that kind of, I don't want to say helped me accept who I was, but it was just something that was um, just fortuitous timing. Right. Yeah. And folks, I mean, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about Capote in terms of like how he came onto this project. But if you don't know anything else about him, I do think most people associate him with those two very seminal texts, but he has a pretty fascinating life. It's a bit of a tragic queer figure he was very outspokenly homosexual like he wasn't necessarily out there at the pride parade but he has apparently had like a reputation of standing up to people and being like hey you wrote this biography of this person and you elided the fact that they were queer what the fuck so i like to think that he is part of that queer canon of people who it's rare to hear about public queer figures like he was in a relationship with a man for many, many years. Well, he was also incredibly successful in Hollywood. And you just don't always hear those stories. Have you ever seen or read Breakfast at Tiffany's? I have not. 
Okay, so I hate it so okay. much. <laughs> and not just because of the racist uh, Asian caricature. Oh boy, yeah. But no, no, no. The, the char- sorry, this is like not related to horror queers at all. But Holly Golightly, the Audrey Hepburn character, is so clearly <laughs> written by a gay man. But I hate her so much. She is. <laughs> is she like a gay man? She's kind of a. She's very materialistic. She she only wants to be with a man for money and for richness and blah blah blah. So it's about how she falls in love with someone who isn't necessarily all those things. But oh my god, I cannot stand Holly Golightly and. <laughs> I haven't seen it since the one time I saw it in college, so perhaps I'm due for a rewatch. But I just remember being so utterly turned off by this despicable character that I was like, I can't even enjoy this movie. Wow. Okay. Well, it sounds like a bit of a challenge. I almost want you to revisit it and let us know if you still feel the same way. (laughs) But let's talk about The (laughs) Innocence. Okay, let's move on. So, okay. As I said, yes, this film is, well, kind of based on the turning of the screw. So the original screenplay for The Innocence was adapted by playwright William Archibald, who had actually already adapted Henry James's novella The Turning of the Screw into a 1950 play called The Innocence. Hmm. Archibald wrote under the assumption that the supernatural experiences of Miss Giddens, or in the case of the novella, the unnamed governess. Of course. Were real. So we're dealing with real ghosts in the play. Okay. The ghosts she encountered were legitimate entities as opposed to figments of her imagination. In the novella, it was more ambiguous. It was like, right. we we don't know if there are ghosts or if this governess is going mad. Is she dealing yeah. with sexual repression, which we'll talk about. Oh my god, I love it. It's all of my <laughs> gothic horror classics. Unfortunately, Clayton, he was like, uh, fuck no, we gotta go with the books way. So we're gonna use your, like, stuff with the play, which took place entirely in one room. So I actually right. really, you see a lot of things where plays are adapted into films where it's like, oh, this feels like a play that's put on film because... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very static in terms of locations. Yes. I like that we explore more in this film. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Clayton said, he goes, my original interest in the story was in the fact that one could tell it from a completely different point of view. In other words, evil was alive in the mind of the governess. And in fact, she more or less creates the situation for herself. I will say, I thought this movie was going to be more ambiguous, and I suppose with the ending of the film, it kind of leaves it out in the open, but Mm -hmm. I never thought we were going to be seeing the ghosts in this movie. Oh, interesting. I didn't know what to expect, but I love the fact that you can make a very compelling argument either way, with the exception of one key scene, which apparently Capote himself was unhappy with, because he's like, ah, shouldn't have left that in. Wait, which scene is it? It's the scene where she discovers Miss Jessel's tears in the classroom. Oh. Capote feels like that that trips it too heavily to say, yes, the ghosts are real. And that's honestly kind of what put it forth for me. I mean, again, I compared this a lot, I guess, walking into it. I was thinking that we were going to get something more akin to The Haunting, Hmm. which is very ambiguous in the sense that you don't see any ghosts in that movie at all. You hear noises, but it's like, oh... Is this all in the main character's head? Because in that movie, it's like, oh, she's a repressed lesbian. Like, that is that is yeah. what that movie is. <laughs> it's literally cause and effect, folks. If you try to repress your queerness, you will see ghosts. They will haunt you till you die. And you might drive into a tree at the end of the movie and kill yourself by accident. Uh, spoilers yeah. for the haunting. <laughs> we'll get there one day. One day, yes. Um, but So I was expecting something like that. So I was actually very pleasantly surprised that we get possibly (laughs) ghosts Mm. in this movie (laughs) ghosts or hallucinations i don't even know (laughs) either or take your pick 
So basically Clayton and Archibald kept clashing over their different interpretations of the material. So that is when Clayton asked Truman Capote to rework his script. And tying in with my story from earlier, Capote was in the middle of writing in Cold Blood, but because he liked the novella so much, he was like, sure, I'll do it. And took a three week hiatus from writing in Cold Blood. And I guess you know, his visits to the killer mm -hmm. to write the screenplay. He introduced the Freudian symbolism that's prominently highlighted in the relationships and the visual compositions of the film, mm -hmm. with implications that the supernatural phenomena experienced by Miss Skiddens is a result of her own sexual repression and paranoias, rather than legitimate paranormal experiences. But um, there was also another man who was brought in to um, zhuzh up the, the dialogue to make it sound more Victorian, which <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that's mostly Mrs. Gross's dialogue. Yeah, yeah, it it's interesting because I do think that, you know, this is not a very busy film in terms of action sequences. There's a couple of standout sequences, but overall, we're talking about a lot of dialogue and the dialogue is whip smart. But yeah, there's there's a couple of characters, as you said, Mrs. Gross, she's got a, you know, British, I don't know, top of the morning to you kind of thing. <laughs> Okay, so um, there were times where I was like, this feels like a book that is literally brought to life on film. And it mm -hmm. reminded me a lot, which again, we're going to flip it because this movie I'm going to mention comes out afterwards. Oz Perkins is I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Okay, interesting. It's very similar. It's very slow. It, it is a ghost story. It's plot wise similar to this minus the kids. but. Right. It's just very slow. You're hearing all the internal thoughts of the character. And it's like, okay, this feels like a gothic horror novel that's just filmed on screen. Mm -hmm. And that might kill it for you. Because again, when you're reading gothic horror, you can imagine so many things. Whereas seeing it on film, it has the opposite effect. Right. And I will say, I know at one point when they were developing this, there was potentially talk about having a narrator be present, like have either Miss Giddens or somebody else narrate this tale. Cause in the original novella, it's like her in three different stages retelling. So it's like the story on top of the hmm. story on top of the story. It's unreliable. So it's like she wrote it and then she put it in a drawer for 20 years and then she opens it back up and then she reads it. And then she's like, puts it away for another 20 years and then somebody <laughs> else reads it. And obviously that's not going to work. So we've just got the one timeline here, but I think it's a wise decision to not have voiceover narration because yeah, I agree. it's enough that we have Miss Giddens on screen for roughly 95% of the time. Like she is our focalization, mm -hmm. but because we're not in her head, it's still left ambiguous. Like I question her throughout the entire film. I'm, I think, and we'll talk about it when we talk about the plot, but it, it's really that scene where it's like, okay, we see Miss Jessel in the grass and there is Flora saying, no, 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 mm -hmm. no, there's there's no one there because honestly i was very much like okay cool there's ghosts and yeah that's <laughs> that's the scene where i'm like oh maybe oh. this lady is just going a little nutty right but we're also introduced to these characters and they're highly verbal and they act like adults and they behave oddly and they tell fibs and they clearly have her wrapped around their fingers so we also think well maybe the kids do see the ghosts, but they're fucking lying about it. <laughs> Very true. So, yeah, um, Capote, though, essentially was responsible for 90% of what we see on screen. And I'm sorry, at least in terms of the screenplay. And, you know, Clayton wanted to maintain that sense of claustrophobia because, as I said before, the play takes place entirely in the drawing room of the house. Mm -hmm. Which I think would be fine in a play, but no, not for the movie. No, no. I mean, okay. <laughs> Again, random digression. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Carnage? It's Roman Polanski, so maybe not. 
I have not, no. So Carnage is a, is a play that won a bunch of Tonys about two sets of parents who their kids had a fight. And so they meet in one of the apartments to like suss out like what to do about the fight between their kids. Mm. Polanski directs the film and it's Kate Winslet and Christoph Waltz against right. John C. Riley and Jodie Foster. And the entire movie takes place in the apartment room. Like that's it. And what critique of that movie was, this just feels like a play that's been put on film. Like, <laughs> why not just right. give us a recording of the play? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you can still make that feel cinematic, because as you were describing it, I was like, oh, that sounds like Fran Kranz's film that he debuted at Sundance, which, of course, I can't remember the name of. It's mm -hmm. something incredibly generic. Um, <laughs> it's basically the parents whose child was killed in a school shooting confronting the parents of the shooter. Ooh. And it's like them trying to unpack all of their complicated feelings. It's a fucking tour de force. It's Martha Plimpton, Jason Isaacs. <gasps> uh, I don't know who the other man is. And then the final woman is Anne Dowd. <gasps> oh my God. It's fucking genius. I just got <laughs> chills thinking about it, but it's literally them at a table for 90 minutes. Oh my God. I cannot wait. So you've seen this? I've seen it and it's amazing. Oh my God. Yes. Okay, cool. I, I cried know, a lot. <laughs> I have never heard of this before, so I am excited. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, oh, it's that guy from Dollhouse. I love him. The Cabin <laughs> in the Woods. I love him. Did not expect this from him. Digression ended. Back Digression to the ended. We might have a lot of these today. Who knows? Folks, it's just the two of us. This is what we do. So yeah, brought in to play the governess is Deborah Kerr. The big difference here, yeah, so she, in the novella and the play, this character is supposed to be around 20 years old. Deborah Kerr is not 20 years old when they film this movie. She is not 20 years old in my 4K TV trace. She is 40 years old. I actually, I don't know if I've seen her anything outside of this and The King and I. Um, but it's it's one of those old Hollywood actresses, you know? It's like, she, she's got mm -hmm. the glamour. Oh, she's got the glamour. I mean, I made a joke, and it sounds super ageist, so I apologize if people took offense. It's more the fact, like, this character is clearly presented as an ingenue, and you're like, that is a mature woman. She looks fucking gorgeous. Like, oh, yeah. Just the way she is lit, the way she holds herself, the costuming is fantastic. Obviously, it's a fantastic performance from her. But I'm like, you are not 20, ma'am. I mean, she has to carry the film. And also, she is lit very, very brightly, as we will discuss soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Put on them shades. Not much, like, fun casting news. Although the kid that plays Miles Martin Stevens, he is one of the kids in the original Village of the Damned. Mm-hmm. He went on to quit acting because he was like, I don't like this anymore. But I just love that he plays two evil children in two very famous tales. Right. I mean, make a career of it. And then, though he receives top billing, bisexual actor Michael Redgrave only appears in the beginning of the film in a cameo role as the children's uncle. And I just toss him bisexual because, you know, we got to have our queer representation here. Indeed. But I also love that his character is like, fuck these kids. I don't give a shit. Oh, <laughs> my God. very much my mindset. He is so dismissive. I loved it. <laughs> I mean, th there's that line at the beginning where she, he's like, do you find me cruel or something? And she's like, no, like honest, but not cruel. I'm like, yeah, because he literally says, I don't have the mental or emotional capacity to care for these children. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I just love the idea. It's like, yes, I am their guardian. Don't ever call me. Mm -hmm. Literally handle everything. Goodbye. <laughs> So when filming this, Hammer Horror is kind of like, it's in its heyday at this point. Like, this is the early 60s. It was kind of in the mid-50s, I think, to the mid-70s is the heyday of Hammer Horror. But um, Clayton did not want this film to be like that. And I think when you're watching this, like, if you put this movie next to something, again, next to Vampire Lovers, like, they mm -hmm. feel completely different. Granted, they're 10 years yes. apart, but... 
Um, so he employed a number of cinematic devices to achieve this end, including using genuinely eerie sound effects and moody stylized lighting. For the first 45 seconds of the film, the screen is black and singing is heard. And only after this do the credits appear, which apparently confused projectionists at the time. So they would actually cut off that portion. Oh, no. And start it at the 20th Century Fox logo. Oh, crap. <laughs> Clayton had previously made films associated with the British New Wave. Um, and he took on this project specifically to avoid being typecast as a New Wave director. And again, just to kind of compare and contrast here, what we're looking at with British New Wave is uh, films in black and white. But they had a spontaneous quality, often shot in a pseudo-documentary or cinema verite style, on real locations with real people rather than extras. Uh, they often challenged the status quo and drew attention to the reality of life for the working class. Uh, needless to say, this movie is not that. Interesting. Okay, I, I didn't realize that the British New Wave basically follows the same tendency as the French New Wave then. Yeah, if you go to look it up, it's like, oh, it's very similar to the French New Wave. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> Because I always thought that was very unique to France. Interesting. To ensure that the child actor's performances remained uninhibited, Clayton withheld the full details of the story. Um, they only received the parts of the script that lacked the surprising and mysterious adult elements of the film, which I can kind of see it for the actress that plays Flora. Yeah, because she is young. But uh, given what Miles, what uh, Martin Stevens has to do in this film, I just imagine that would be kind of difficult. Yeah, like, act like an adult. Do this line reading as though you're possessed by an adult. Mm-hmm. So, okay, here, here's our big kind of fun factoid drama, which I actually did a bit of research on because I wasn't completely familiar. Um, 20th Century Fox insisted that this film be shot in CinemaScope. Now, my only knowledge of CinemaScope, and I'm going to show my dumbness here, is a line from the Hairspray musical when they're singing Miss Baltimore Crabs, and she's like, aren't you scared we're on live? Well, I'm sure I can cope. Well, this show isn't broadcast in CinemaScope, because she's fat. Mm. <laughs> so that's the only I was like, what does that mean? But it makes sense, because uh, CinemaScope is basically used from 1953 to 1967, and it was pretty much the beginning of the modern anamorphic format uh, that leads into widescreen aspect ratios of film. Yeah, which is what I thought it was. And then when I looked it up, I was like, but wait, why are they talking about it in reference to like the weird iris effect that we see throughout this film? So that was the cheat. Okay, so basically, yeah. So CinemaScope precedes Panavision. I can toss out a bunch of numbers, but that's just not how I do things um, mm. with the aspect ratios. Because I, I can tell you right now, you give me aspect ratio numbers. I am sitting here like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, why did I fell asleep in my wine? So basically... Clayton was like, I don't want to fucking do that. And <laughs> I love his like, no, I will not, sir. Well, and so Fox, and the reason Fox demanded it is because 20th Century Fox helped develop it. Like they are part of the founders, the creators. Oh, they were it. known for it. They wanted to make money off of it, all this bullshit. Yes. And they had yeah. this mandate that were like, oh, CinemaScope will also only be films in color, which I think may have been one of the reasons why Jack Clayton did this in black and white. <laughs> god i love it he's basically just telling them fuck you i'm making this movie how i want and they were like no you're not and so it, it kind of came to a standstill where clayton was like i'm either gonna have to walk or do this so yeah. cinematographer freddie francis goes i can totally do this um we're gonna trick fox and this is his quote which i have from my criterion booklet okay Eventually, I persuaded Jack that there was nothing he could do to avoid the inevitable, because if we didn't think scope, then Fox was likely to withdraw from the project. I devised a set of color glass filters, which had the effect of fading the picture out toward the edges and concentrating the audience's attention on different sections of the large screen. 
again, Clayton is also like it's a cantankerous old man. I don't want to learn new technology. I know how to film in let's say full screen format. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to learn something new. So this is the cinematographer being like, "Let me help you, old man." <laughs> it's okay, Grandpa. Let me take care of it. I got gotcha. you. So he says each filter was approximately 10 by 4 inches and was clear at the center and then hand-colored gradually toward the edges where they were very dark. Apart from changing the exposure, they made the picture's imagery more uneven. Of course, Fox was totally unaware of this sleight of hand because it had the illusion of being a huge widescreen picture. We didn't use them all the time because as the production progressed, Jack became more confident with the process of CinemaScope and we came up with other ways of filling the entire screen. So, oh my gosh. When you're watching the movie, yeah, you'll see that sometimes it's like there's um, not a filter, but like um, like a border around the screen, mm-hmm. like something you'll get in like a, like a Christmas card, but it's just like black shadows, and it's mostly in those darker sequences in the house. It's true, and it's hilarious to me. I mean, I appreciate where Fox is coming from. They developed something new, and they wanted to profit off of it. They wanted to showcase it, so I get that. But I also think it's hilarious that this film goes on to become a classic. And one of the reasons that people recognize it is for its artistry, particularly in the way it creates a sense of claustrophobia through what this uh, cinematographer is doing. Right, but that's the thing. Like, So we're in this giant-ass mansion, but it still feels so claustrophobic because of what this border on the screen is doing. Mm-hmm. You just don't really think about that. You're like, oh, that looks kind of weird. Maybe it's an old film. Like, <laughs> Oh, no. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that they're doing this. I felt like I was being squeezed into a box. Mm-hmm. Yep. I feel like that's something that gets lost sometimes with modern audiences, too, where it's like the language of cinema, like visual language Mm -hmm. is making you feel a certain way. Like, yes, Yes. you can have someone literally in a box and you feel claustrophobic, like in Kill Bill or Buried. But Mm -hmm. this is something where it's like, oh, the image itself is constrained, which is making me feel claustrophobic, but you don't realize it. Yes, the visual power of cinema like that, that to me is what distinguishes this from say, an adaptation for the stage or like an audio version of it on the radio, this capacity to capture feelings visually and help Mm -hmm. the audience to understand and be scared in particular moments because of what you're doing with the visual language like, you know what, it's cinema. No, it, it absolutely is. So Some other tricks that Freddie Francis used, um, so he used deep focus throughout, and deep focus is basically just the foreground, the middle ground, the background are all in focus. So we talked last week in Bride of Chucky about split diopter shots and how, okay, cool, it's where something close to the screen and far away from the screen is in focus, but there's like that little blurry line in the middle. Mm -hmm. Not the case here. Everything is in focus, but the only way they could achieve this is by narrowly aiming the lighting towards the center of the screen, and they had to use a lot of lighting. (laughs) Apparently it was so bright on set that Deborah Kerr had to arrive wearing sunglasses one day. I love it. (laughs) And then, yeah, they framed the film in an unusually bold style with characters prominent at the edge of the frame and their faces at the center in profile in some sequences, which, again, created both a sense of intimacy and unease based on the lack of balance in the image. So, again, that's where we're going back into your language of whatever the fuck you said. Cinema. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> Cinema. Uh, and that's also why, like, the candles or the candelabras have, like, so, such huge flames, because they had five wicks per candle. Right. Yes. But, um, but yeah, so this movie opens um, in the UK on November 24th, 1961, and the United States on December 15th, 1961. It's about 100 minutes long, released by 20th Century Fox, and made for a budget of £430,000. So, fun <laughs> stuff there. 
<laughs> getting my British accent. It is, of course, a classic of horror cinema, as we've already stated. This film has gone on to be considered one of the best horror films ever made. We're looking at a 94% of Rotten Tomatoes and, you know, certain things like elegant, sinister, and scalp prickling, eerie and coldly beautiful. Uh, Martin Scorsese has this on his list of the 11 scariest horror films of all time. And Guillermo del Toro himself cites the film as an influence on his 2015 gothic horror film, Crimson Peak. Yeah, I can see it. I honestly wish I would have known that before seeing Crimson Peak, because I think if I had seen The Innocent, said, okay, like, this is this is what I'm in for. Because I remember when I saw Crimson Peak, I was like, it's a lot of style, right? <laughs> it is, and that's one of the criticisms that often gets leveled at that film. Yep. So I think I would have been more prepared for Crimson Peak had I had, I had more experience, let's say, with gothic horror. Right, yeah. Yeah, between this and Rebecca... They are two kind of pinnacles, like they're two giants of this mm. subgenre. This is like a, a soft entryway, like a good gateway into gothic horror. At the same time, and oh my god, I'm going to get raked across the coals for this, but I can see someone watching this and being like, it's really boring. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because at the end of the day, there is a certain cerebral element to this. It's like we're watching a woman either go mad or be gently haunted by ghosts. Gently haunted, yes. That that is very very that's a very good phrase. <laughs> <laughs> also, I realized as you were giving me the release dates, this is the 60th anniversary of the film this year. Holy shit, is that why we're covering it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> We are great at our jobs. We're as really I said good. earlier. It's been a fun week. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so before we dive into this, Trace, I did want to bring up one thing about an influence that Capote might have used when he was doing some of the dialogue touch-ups. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you talked a little bit about there's obviously some visual motifs, so like we can make note of the mirrors and the flora and the fauna. Those are recurring things that pop up throughout the film. And the flo and flora. <laughs> Literally included in a character name. I'm going to reference Denis Trede's article, Shadows of Shadows, Techniques of Ambiguity in Three Film Adaptations of The Turn of the Screw. Mm. And he suggests that Capote may have drawn some influence from a 15th century picture book. <laughs> you ready for this? Yeah, do tell. <laughs> so this picture book is called Hypnerotomachia Polyphily, or The Strife of a Love in the Dream of Polyphilo. So this picture book is apparently about this main character, Polyphilo, and he goes on this mysterious odyssey as he searches for his true love, Polya. And there's a number of similarities between the two texts. And as you sort of hinted at, Capote's actually very literate. Like, he's a very smart man. Mm -hmm. He knew his references. So it is entirely possible that he knew something very vague and weird, like a 15th century picture book. <laughs> so... Both texts have a marked ambiguity between reality and the dream state. And this is particularly noticeable in the opening, which is like a dream within a dream. Mm -hmm. And then we also have Polyphilo and Miss Giddens are struck by the immensity of the new location when they first arrive. So Polyphilo is going through, it's kind of like a maze of a forest. And then, of course, Miss Giddens, when she comes into the house at Bly, she goes, oh, my gosh, it's so big. I, I had no idea. Yeah, we do get that nice touch, too, when she enters. Like When the carriage drops her off, she's, she's like, stop! I'm going to walk the rest of the way <laughs> just to experience the grounds. Yeah, well, she's kind of like a sweet baby angel. Like, she's such a child in a lot oh, of ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
speaking of, both characters get lost in mazes of corridors, which is a reference to the troubled minds or the fracturing mentality. We get references to statues in this 15th century picture book. And of course, in the film, we actually have a garden of statues, which is where our climax takes place. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's a, a very important image in this picture book of a woman holding a turtle in one hand and a bird in the other, which are references to earth and heaven. Oh, hey, that that makes a lot. I know. Of sense. I was like, you're not <laughs> buying any of this. I can tell that I've lost you until the end. No, it's not that I'm lost. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. But yeah, then we like, I, I need it in my face. I don't need the ambiguity. <laughs> so you tell me, oh, it's a turtle and a bird. Yes, we're there because we yeah. get both of those in this movie. Because otherwise, what the fuck is this turtle doing in this movie? I don't know to be abused by Miles later. Oh gosh, and almost drowned by Flora. Yeah, I, it's. I hate this kid so much. I mean, I, 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 I know, I know that's the basis of this story is these two shitty ass kids. But oh my god, I cannot stand them. You talked about how much you hated them in this, and how annoyed we both were when we talked about haunting a blind manor in Patreon. Mm-hmm. And you know, you get over that in that series because it ends up becoming a bit of a well, it's proper gothic romance, well, really. It's interesting watching that, because again, I, I, I am familiar with Turning of the Screw. I have never seen an adaptation of it. So I know the basic story. So Haunting of Blind Manor was my first experience, like, seeing this story play out. And granted, mm. I can see how purists might be, because as we discussed in that episode, that show is mostly the turning of the screw, but it also adapts other works of Henry James. So it kind of right. blends them all into this big thing. I can see how purists would be upset with, literalizing these ghosts because it's explicitly a haunting in mm-hmm. haunting a blind manor and of course there's a there's an explicit queer aspect introduced in that sh- that story which i think for an update for a story that's been told a hundred not hundreds but like a lot of times mm-hmm. tens of times i think it's the best way to go about it whereas of course this in 1961 it's like okay cool like, let's let's go back to the bare bones of this story yeah it's a little more straightforward but mm-hmm. um in terms of shitty kids if you want the ultimate just absolute peak of shittiness. I will encourage people to check out The Turning because uh, Finn Wolfhard is honestly, I wanted to murder him in that movie. He is so frustrating. I've heard it's very pretty though because the director, and I could not tell you her name, it's Fiora Sigismondi. It's don't. Floria Sigismondi. Okay, she's a very famous music video director. So Correct. At, at the very least, it should be a visual feast, just not a narrative one. Here's the thing. I feel like I've said this before, probably in our Haunting a Blind Manor episode, but the turning is perfectly fine. It's just that the studio adds on an ending. So when you think the movie is over, just stop it. And it's actually okay. It's not great, <laughs> but it's fine. It's that extra ending that makes you feel like you want to just be like, whose fucking decision was this? This is mm. garbage. Was it maybe for runtime? Mm. I think it's because it's not bombastic enough without that ending, which is a very like traditional Hollywood which is really funny, though, given how this movie ends, or at least how this story ends. Oh, God. This movie would not get made this way. No! No, 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 no. Although, although, although. Imagine, like, I think, like, the others here, you know? Like, Nicole mm-hmm. Kidman doing this. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Again, it adds to the level of prestige, right? There's a certain restraint in this film. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, we've been dabbling, dawdling. Dabbling and dawdling. Yeah, we've been doing both. Uh, let's talk about this movie. All right. So as you mentioned, we do open on a black screen and we hear a melancholy rendition of a lullaby, which is called Oh Willow Wally. 
and then we eventually open on credits as a woman, and she is sobbing in prayer about her need to save children. More than anything, Trace. She <laughs> loves the children. All I want to do is save the children, not destroy them. I thought that was an interesting inclusion. Oh, this is very <laughs> telling. Like, right off the bat, she's potentially cuckoo bananas, and she's going to kill these kids. Yep. Good movie. Good ending. <laughs> uh, yes. So um, we are introduced to Miss Giddens, and in case uh, you weren't certain why they gave her this name, considering she is just called mm -hmm. the woman or the governess in the book, Denise Treddy suggests that Miss Giddens reminds us of her constant misgivings, as well as her <laughs> often giddy or dizzy state of mind. You know what? That, again, feels more like literature. Mm -hmm. Again, like this is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be, we're 40 minutes in. It's a dry episode, y'all, because we're going through some like education here. But like, I feel like I'm in like, again, like a high school English class, like learning. Oh, this is why this person's named this. Yeah. But obviously also that, that goes with film too. Any, any kind of art. <laughs> well, I mean, nothing is happenstance, right? Like when Capote is thinking about this, credit either Capote or Archibald. When they're writing the screenplay, they thought, okay, we can't just say nameless woman or something. Like they need to have something that the characters can refer to. And they thought, okay, well, what is going to make sense in service of the story? But doesn't that, again, calling back to mind Rebecca, the second Mrs. De Winter. Absolutely. Nameless in the book, nameless in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I almost wonder if they... Fuck, because when was Rebecca? Rebecca was 41, so okay. this is 20 years later. So I wonder if they're like, don't do that, because Rebecca did it better. Maybe. maybe. I mean, this is 1961, so, hit, uh, so Psycho would have come up the year before. Oh, yeah. Everybody living in the shadow of Hitchcock. Yeah. Okay, so we're introduced proper. The film has now begun. Miss Giddens is being interviewed by this self-proclaimed selfish bachelor who is played <laughs> by Michael Redgrave. Again, it's such a lighthearted... It's not unsettling. It's just like, oh, this guy is kind of a dick, but like, I find his honesty about his dickness endearing. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know how this would have played in 61. A bachelor who is supposed to be taking care of these two children just shirks his responsibility. Well, and it's not a new responsibility. He's had them since they were infants. Mm -hmm. So he just can't be bothered. Yeah, he just literally can't be bothered. I mean, again, later in the film, he sends the note where he's like, uh, just don't bother me. Handle it. <laughs> well, even like I didn't even open this to see what it is because I don't. Oh, care. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. He's terrible. Um, yeah, so he is hiring a governess to take care of this niece and nephew, Flora, played by Pamela Franklin and Miles, as you said, played by Martin Stevens. And he is so disinterested that even when she's like, oh, I'm not really sure. I've never really had a job as a governess. He's just like, yeah, you're hired. So, okay, we know Deborah Kerr is 40 years old in real life during the filming of this film. Is this character supposed to be 20 or is she supposed to be 40? I think she's supposed to be young, because there is a line later when Mrs. Gross says, oh, he likes them young and pretty. Uh, you know what? You're right. Maybe you're right. Or I might be imposing the young in there because I'm thinking about it. She might have just said pretty. I, I distinctly got the impression she was meant to be young. Yeah, I mean, her naivete mm -hmm. uh, certainly lends credence to that theory. Yeah, exactly. So the one condition of her employment is that she is not to talk about the former dead governess. <laughs> so please don't talk about Miss Jessel, who is played by Clyde Jessup in honestly a thankless role. You barely get to see this woman's face. 
I mean, it's just, well, yeah, it, I was, it's a little less thankless than, I'm sorry, it's a little more thankless than the guy that plays Quint, because you at least see his face up close, but yes. This is true. Yeah, the, the ghosts are present, but uh, heaven help you if you're trying to put this into, like, your acting reel for the future. Funny, random fact, though, the guy that plays Quint, Peter Wingard, apparently he was the basis or a part of the inspiration for the character of Austin Powers. Oh my god, really? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. <laughs> oh, that's so weird. I think the actual the actor himself, like not the role show, but like, I think he was because apparently he had a sexual scandal that happened in the mid seventies that like ruined his career. Yeah. But yeah, I guess uh, I just I found that and I was like, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, the innocence so culturally relevant it has given us Austin Powers. <laughs> not really. I mean, I'm sure this guy was in other movies. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so she hops into this carriage, and she's on her way to Bly, and it looks gorgeous, and it's so pretty. Yeah, she gets out, and she walks. She hears someone calling to Flora before she actually sees the girl, and this is down by the lake, except when she mentions it, Flora's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, and that, again, it's little things like that, like little hair raising, like, oh, that's kind of creepy, which... Modern audiences were like, okay, we get it. But in 1961, it's like, oh, this is like a ghost story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or can we trust her? Yes, yes. But that's where the fun for this comes in for me, because it's like we are hearing everything. Because because we're in her POV, we hear everything she hears, we see everything she sees. We never... <sighs> Like, I love that kind of the mental gymnastics you have to do where it's like, well, are these people just fucking with her? Mm-hmm. Because that's certainly what it seems like. I don't even end it frustrated that we don't know. Because in my mind, I choose to believe that she is not going crazy, but she actually is seeing ghosts. <laughs> okay. And I will say outside of that one scene, I do think she's going crazy. Well, and, well, and we can discuss that as we get further into like the paranormal activity. <laughs> yeah she sets up a camcorder in the corner of the room and she films herself overnight i mean i i, th- I think uh, uh the reading is more interesting if she is going crazy like that's where the sexual oppression comes in whereas mm-hmm. an actual haunting is more conventional which yeah. maybe that's where my brain goes and your brain goes the opposite way yeah i'll just agree with you i think the mental gymnastics are part of the fun of this movie and i think mm-hmm. it's well done enough that we can have these conversations and that's what keeps the film interesting and relevant 60 years later. There is an interview with, I want to say the editor where he was like, I don't even think Jack Clayton knows what's happening, which I think again, that because people are like, Oh, what's, what's, what's the intention? There is no mm-hmm. intention. The intention is to be ambiguous. Right. And you got to think that makes for a better film, right? Keep them guessing, keep them wondering, let the conversation linger. I like to imagine audiences walking out of this film in 1961, like talking about, like, what did you think? What was happening? Blah, 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 blah. Like, like, you know, like whatever the water cooler conversation, like whatever that is in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> what is the water cooler situation in the 60s? I guess maybe it's a water cooler. <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. So uh, they walk back to the house, and here she is introduced to Mrs. Gross. And Mrs. Gross is played by Meg Jenkins. It's fine. Yeah, it's she, not a showy role. Yeah, she's pretty one note throughout the film, loves to withhold secrets and things. Oh my gosh, Lady Spit It Out. Yeah, she, she, when she does explain, she has a lot of words to explain it. And when she doesn't explain things, she's like deliberately hiding things. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because she wants to maintain the propriety of the family and the estate, right? Kind of like Rebecca, they don't want people outside of the estate talking. 
Right. Yeah. So Flora then reveals that Miles will be coming soon. And Ms. Giddens is like, uh, what? But uh, <laughs> cool. Tell me more about this Miss Jessup. She was pretty like me. Hair flip. So later, Flora asks if people stick around after they die. Creepy. Yeah. I mean, she's a very, <laughs> she reminds me of the kids from the others. Like, what are you up to? What are you seeing? Right? What do you know? That, and again, that's something too where I'm sure if I rewatch the others today, I'm sure I would see so many references to the innocence in that film as well. I think so too. Yeah. So in the night, the girl smiles at Miss Giddens as she's tossing and turning. So it, she seems to almost be taking pleasure in the fact that Miss Giddens is having a restless sleep. Yeah, she's like spying on her. Um, we also get this weird thing. When putting Flora to bed, like, she hears a hurt animal, and Flora's like, oh, just pretend it's not there. That's what Mrs. Gross says. Like, if you pretend it's not there, then it's not real. And it's like, what mm-hmm. kind of advice is that? <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Gross just says, repress everything, and we'll all be better for it. I mean, that really is the message that she's giving out. And so, yeah, then we get this creepy little bitch spying on her governess while she's having nightmares. Mm-hmm. And then she sings the lullaby that we heard at the beginning as she's looking out the window. And then in the morning, Miss Giddens is then humming it. We will hear that song so many, many times. times. <laughs> if we were doing an audio commentary on this, a drinking rule would be like, take a shot every time you hear that fucking song. I cannot. <laughs> and then you die you from die, liver yeah. poisoning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So in the morning, they do indeed receive a letter saying that Miles has been expelled from school because he is a, quote, injury to the other students. And I'm sorry, I have to point out this one line, which apparently is of Capodeism. Flora's, like, looking at something while Miss Giddens is reading this letter, and she goes, Oh, look, a lovely spider. It's eating a butterfly. And she just watches this spider eat a butterfly. <laughs> mm-hmm. The children are creepy. They're weird. It's terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I would watch it, too, but oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, at least she's not burning ants with a magnifying glass or something. No, she might as well be. She might as well be. (laughs) So Miss Giddens is worried that Miles is going to be this corrupting force, but it's kind of too late because we're already at the train station. We're picking him up. I love the fact that there's an immediacy in the way that Miss Giddens connects with flora when they first meet and you can tell that she's really putting on a face when she meets miles like i was not expecting a second child until later and fuck 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 well if we're going with your sexual repression theory though do you think also i mean i I know he's not a sexual object for her well maybe Mm. but but it's also it's it's male energy that she is having to deal with now granted and i mean this in the nicest possible way does this kid he looks strange to you. There's something about his eyes that just really, I don't know if they're too far apart or if they're uneven or something, but something looks uncanny about this kid. And I could, it was unsettling to me. Yeah, I don't know if it's a physical thing or part of his acting. The fact that you mentioned he is in Village of the Damned cues me to think that we're not alone in sensing uh, a bit of malice and, (laughs) and menace to him. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Maybe that's why he quit, because he was like, I'm getting typecast. (laughs) Everyone thinks I'm a demon child. (laughs) Yeah, so they go back to the house, and she reassures Mrs. Gross that she will deal with Miles at a later time, but she doesn't want to spoil the homecoming. So already she's becoming very complacent, like the children are running over her. I lo- <laughs> but first she's like, oh, that crew letter must be a mistake. And Mrs. Gross just looks at her and goes, oh, yes, a mistake. <laughs> 
I mean, Mrs. Gross knows what's up, but she ain't talking. <laughs> so that night, Miss Giddens does indeed talk to Miles about it, and he seems very calm and wise beyond his years. So he he reacts like a mature, quote unquote, adult. Again, like I almost hate that I've seen the Blind Manor show ahead of this because I'm like, oh, he's possessed by Quint. Yeah, exactly. Because again, you're, if you're watching this for the first time, you don't know that. You just think this is a very intelligent child, which again, he might just be that if we're going away from the ghost theory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Except, of course, the conversation ends when a gust of wind mysteriously blows out this candle. <laughs> but again, even his language, though, because he goes, oh, don't be frightened, my dear. It's just the wind. The my... The my dear. dear. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. child uses that language, even if they are British. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe British children do. <laughs> <laughs> British listeners, write in. Let us know. <laughs> Cheerio, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cheerio, my darling, my dear. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Tally-ho. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) So the next day they are in this lush garden. It's very nice. And this is where Miss Giddens catches the sight of a man who is played by Peter Wingard. And he appears to be standing on the tower, but she's looking directly into the sun. So you can't quite trust what she's seeing. And the sound cuts out. They do a little bit of slow motion, which I Mm -hmm. thought was really interesting. I do think the because we get a foreshadowing where she's looking at this uh, this statue and a beetle crawls out of its mouth. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's like a bad omen of some sort. Yes, but yeah, it's it's filmed in a way to where you're supposed to be like, maybe she's not seeing things correctly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Of course, when she goes to investigate, what she finds is Miles up there. He's playing with the birds. Literally playing with the birds, and then he okay. Again, I feel like this is a Capote line, too, because he gives her this dig where she's like, oh, maybe I was just not seeing things correctly. And he goes, oh, dear, I do hope you won't have to wear spectacles. You're much too pretty for that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Which also, though, is he hitting on her? Like, is he being fresh? I think he's like, I'm grooming you for my future wife. Don't get ugly. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what is this birth? Another Nicole Kidman property? God, yes. Nicole Kidman's like, all of my projects have to be like The Innocents. She's like, God damn it. I wish I could have been in that movie. (laughs) Remake The Innocents, y'all. I guess they did last year with the turning, but. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Remake The Innocents, but keep the pacing. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, so this is where Miss Giddens is like, I need more information. So she asks Mrs. Gross, hey, is there somebody else living in this house? Because I totally thought I saw someone. But uh, she doesn't really get a chance for an answer because Miles is outside riding a horse. (laughs) And there's this weird moment where she's obviously enamored with him because he's having so much fun. And, you know, it looks delightful. But then there's a strong gust through the trees and it seems really malevolent. Mm -hmm. I mean, the exterior shots of this movie are gorgeous oh god yes yeah Mm -hmm. i mean the grounds look lovely i would love to go to the uk right now and just party in some castle grounds yeah absolutely (laughs) this moment actually reminded me of the funeral sequence from final destination 3 where they're like standing at the grave and then the gust of wind blows by and oh so so it's death coming together a little bit that's, that's fair yeah um okay so later on she's hanging out with the kids it's almost bedtime and they're having a discussion about keeping secrets and how the size of the house makes it either difficult or really easy to keep secrets so hint hint it's a large house 
And we also learn here, because she mentioned that her father was, like, giving a sermon. So she comes from a religious background, which is where mm-hmm. the sexual repression comes into play again. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but the reason we get all these shots of insect life and the flora and the fauna, as you said, is to say, oh, look, this is flourishing compared to her dried up vagina. <laughs> um Yes, I I did not say it in quite that way, but um, (laughs) yeah, you know what? She's not been using the downstairs bits all that often, we'll say that. No. No. And people don't masturbate back then. Oh, of course not, yeah. (laughs) People have never masturbated until contemporary times. (laughs) I know. So they decide that they're going to play a little game of hide and seek, because the kids get all excited. Bad idea. Bad idea. Never play hide and seek with kids. Never. Mm Mm-mm. And not in a mansion like this, or whatever you, the estate. Here's the thing. The fact that she found them at all, credit to her as a governess, because these kids could have been missing for days. This is really the when we get the first, like, this is when the creep factor really comes up for me in this film. And there's Indeed. two really good sequences. So move, yeah. move ahead. Yeah, it's back to back. So she goes up a staircase and she sees a woman dressed in a black shroud and veil just walk by. Oh, I loved that. Such a subtle... And again, isn't it kind of nice that we get things like that and it's not paired with this big, loud music cue? Yes, yes. Which (laughs) I think, again, does reinforce the question of, oh, is she actually seeing it? But yeah, it's nice and subtle. Well, it's not necessarily blink and you miss it, but it's a very quick shot. So if you were looking away or not paying attention to this film, you would miss this. Mm -hmm. And it's not well lit in this particular Mm -hmm. instance. So the woman really does kind of blend into the background very quickly. Yeah, it's very creepy and disturbing to watch. You're just seeing her black dress flow in the blackness. Mm -hmm. And I I love it because Miss Giddens is kind of like, Okay, weird. I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep looking. (laughs) So she, well, I think she gets a little frightened. So she's trying to find the kids a little more eagerly. So she goes up to the attic. So come out, you little fuckers. Right. So she goes up to the attic and she initially doesn't think anything is there. But then she notices that there's actually like a marionette doll thing that's moving, which I was hell knowing. No, I I, I 100%. And again, like, I'm just I'm like, okay, well, that thing's gonna move. It doesn't, obviously, because it's not this is not that kind of movie. But and we also don't get a close up shot of it. Like she's we, we again, we see it from her POV. So we're seeing it in the distance as it's kind of just like shaking. Back it's and just forth. rocking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. So then she does hear the music box is playing a Willow Wally. So she goes to investigate. And this is where she is full on fucking attacked by Miles, who initially seems to hug her, but then tightens his grip to the point where he is choking her and she is telling him to stop. Yeah, it's it's a really honestly upsetting scene. Let's go into this, too. So, OK, let's say she is going insane. Mm hmm. So, well, okay, so do we think that this is actually happening? Obviously, it's happening, but do we think it's as intense as she slash the film is making it out to be with him choking her? Or do we think that he's just being a stupid little kid? I, what, what do you make of this? If we take it that she is losing her faculties, I take it as he is just being aggressive and she is like, ramping it up because she has just gone through two back-to-back scary things right Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden someone attacks her from behind and she gets really worried and nervous i'll lean into with the sexual repression is like oh it's a man too touching her i mean i say a man but it's it's someone with a penis (laughs) (laughs) a boy a child a child with a penis like touching her and she's not and she doesn't like that she's not used to the touch of a man Mm -hmm. yep absolutely 
I mean, regardless of how you read it, it it's an upsetting scene, but I find it's very effective. Like, mm-hmm. you fear for her, you are worried about, like, what is going on with these kids. It seems like a very dark, weird moment. And it's, uh, yeah, it's awkward, honestly, more than, I mean, it, it is disturbing, it is upsetting, but I also find it very awkward, especially once Flora comes in and she has to, like, put herself together to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, she she just has to brush it off, right? So even if she has undergone some kind of trauma here, she has to resume being a professional and saying, like, oh, okay, <laughs> let's just keep playing this game. <laughs> oh, my God, what the fuck? And then I thought she was going to be like, okay, it's time to go to bed. But no, they're like, no, your turn. She's like, okay, I guess I'm going to go fucking hide now. I mean, honestly, they're walking all over her 100% in this position. It's off to bed right now, you fucking little shits. You are the governess. Govern. (laughs) Govern to bed. (laughs) Govern your little asses all the way to bed. But no, so she goes and hides. I will say this is the first instance where I really notice that kind of iris framing on the edges of the screen because uh, it looks tight. Like she is having some kind of episode as she is looking for a place to hide. There are a few times, too, where the camera pans around rooms, and it almost looks like it's in a fisheye lens, like the the image on screen warps a bit. Mm. But yeah, it's in these scenes. The smaller the room, the more you'll notice the iris thing, because they're trying to make it more claustrophobic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she ends up hiding behind a curtain, and she's startled by something on the glass, and she looks over, and she thinks that she sees this man from the tower, and also the photo that she actually saw in the music box. Okay, the reveal of this man is so... He appears out of nowhere. He's practically, like, floating towards the window. So it's not even, oh, she sees his face in the window. He's coming towards the window. Mm -hmm. I I literally just got chills, like, saying this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so good. Like, this is the scare I was mentioning earlier. Like, this is a very... Yeah, oh, this is a very effective scare for me. I think it's fantastic. I I mean, I'm I'm not questioning you because I don't think it's... I do think it's effective. It's not the one I thought you were going to talk about. Ooh, okay. Well, when that comes up, uh, bring it up. Okay. Yeah, so she she gets properly freaked out. And when she talks about it to Mrs. Gross, because she, you know, rightfully makes a lot of noise and Miss Gross comes in, she describes it and Mrs. Gross says, oh, you're talking about Peter Quint. He's the dead valet. But th- that's the other thing, too, right, though? So she describes these people, and Mrs. Gross is like, oh, yeah, that's uh, you're describing these people. But I guess we, we could presume that maybe she saw it, because she did see a picture of Quint at one point, so that's why she's seeing Quint. She just saw the picture. It was in the music box upstairs uh, in the attic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's okay. fresh in her mind, and it's also associated with that moment where Miles attacked her. So it's like, oh, there's a threatening man. Kind of like that picture when I was just attacked. And so she's got undergone trauma of a sort. And so mm-hmm. now she's like, her mind is playing tricks on her to like cope with the trauma she just endured. Yeah. But I love it because even as you're thinking, oh my God, of course, she has seen a ghost. We just got it confirmed by Mrs. Gross. It immediately, it's cut by the children laughing at her maniacally from this balcony. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just like, or the kids are doing this that's also that shot you'll get that iris in there as well because it's it's a long shot of them on this balcony but it just closes around them to be like look at these little fuckers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so that night again she is kept up by bad dreams and then this makes her very irritable the next day when she is doing the school lessons with the kids so Uh. I'm sorry, disciplining too. So instead of like, so A, they make her feel bad for being on edge. And so her solution, let's pretend it's Flora's birthday. What would you like to do? Like, okay. 
<laughs> Let's mm-hmm. spoil these shit some more. Oh, yeah. And she just caves to them every time. So they go off to find costumes. And I was like, oh, okay, we're going to get that scene from The Haunting of Bly Manor where Miles comes out and delivers this, like, really creepy thing. But I love that we don't get it right away. Instead, mm-hmm. she uses this opportunity to question Mrs. Gross more about how Quint died. And we learn about how he was drunk and he fell on the steps. And Miles is the one who found him. And Miles was infatuated with him. Like, well, I love this dump of exposition. And then it's like, oh, and the kids are back and we're doing this performance. It takes yeah, her, her to explain this takes forever. She also kind of says, like, basically that Quint was an asshole. Like, she says something very, like very polite about oh his actions make sense for the violence that would people wanted to do against him or whatever but we don't really know his cause of death i mean we know he had a head hit Mm -hmm. they assume he slipped we assume miles found him miles could have fucking killed him we don't Mm -hmm. even know oh yeah like the the details are thinly sketched but not clear I have in my notes, this guy was apparently a douchebag. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll get this performance from Miles, and it, it goes on, I think, a little bit too long. Like, the point is kind of made. He's, again, yeah. talking like an adult, and then this wigs Miss Giddens out, so she further questions Mrs. Gross, and this is mm-hmm. where we learn more or less that Miss Jessel and Peter Quint were lovers, but it's hilarious to me because I was like, oh, okay, so there's the confirmation they were fucking. But we'll get a later scene where she asks her again, you're like, oh, God, she's so naive she doesn't even understand well because the way that that mrs gross says that they're fucking oh my god she says i didn't write down the line but the way she says they were fucking it's like they were using the rooms Mm -hmm. as something and it's like code for they were just fucking all over these rooms (laughs) yeah and she couldn't be sure whether or not the children were were seeing them we're dealing with something that maybe the children saw them fucking Mm -hmm. and were like mentally or emotionally scarred by whatever kind of sex they were having yeah (laughs) i mean holy shit you guys this is 1961 (laughs) well that's that's what i love right like that's part of the reason why we're not getting this spelled out but also because we don't have the details our minds are free to just imagine like what the fuck were they up to i'm just imagining truman capote like how can i insinuate really kinky sex without saying really kinky sex (laughs) right I'm not saying sling, but I'm also not saying sling. (laughs) So I don't want to make a note of it just because I haven't touched on it. But every time we see Miss Giddens question Mrs. Gross, like nearly every time, they're almost always separated by vases of white roses. And Mm -hmm. there is some symbolism here. So a white rose is a symbol of purity and of the Virgin Mary. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So this is stressing, again, that religious side to her her mission, but also her background, as well as the inadvertent harm that she may be bringing to the children's purity. So the idea, I mean, this movie is called The Fucking Innocence, and it's about the kids maybe being perverted either by demonic possession or this fucking governess. Right. And then the other interpretation is that the white rose is traditionally a symbol of silence and secrecy. So it turns Bly Manor into a white rosary by way of foregrounding the dark secrets. Oh. Well, that actually, 
I mean, that kind of plays into a little bit of, I mean, I'm going back a, a little bit, and by a little bit, I mean all the way to the opening scene, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but um, so the, the reason, so, you know, we have Kerr's face highlighted in the opening scene as she's playing the rosary, so it's supposed to create that sense of intimacy and perhaps trust that the governor should be trusted, but the reason <laughs> that it's dark all around her is suggesting that it's possible the story that follows could be nothing more than in her own mind, isolating right. and creating its own supernatural world, so the darkness is very much doing that, whereas the lightness is doing the opposite so it's contrasting you're trying to figure out what is what so yeah you know what's fascinating though i realize when we get to the end of the film and that scene kind of replays i realize that you could read it as an introduction to the story to come or you could look at it as this is her after the fact after she has potentially killed miles like we're seeing the end at the beginning oh yeah i mean yeah that's where that line comes from though right but uh but she says all i want to do not all i wanted to do so it just I don't know. I mean, her her mission statement hasn't changed. Just because she killed that one kid, Trey, she may still want to protect the children. Well, that's why that not destroy them. Like, I just destroyed this one, so maybe I'll have luck with the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Second time's a charm. I'm really going to kill it this time. Ooh, Mm -hmm. the language. Damn it. (laughs) All right. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I swear. It was a murder, but not a crime. (laughs) So at the lake the next day, Miss Giddens asks Flora about the song that she's always singing. And this is where we see Miss Jessel standing in the water. And it's great. And it this is the fantastic. first time we see her, right? This is the first time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I honestly think I've seen this frame before. And I thought it was from a different movie. Because it doesn't look... It looks like it's from a, an older film for some reason. But yeah, it's creepy. Just seeing this woman just standing there. We don't get a zoom in. It's just... We just... Again, from Giddens POV, just mm-hmm. seeing this woman across the way. Yeah, it actually reminded me a little bit of like J-horror. Yes! with dark hair standing in water. The water, yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is where Miss Giddens utters that line that she's worried about these horrors and abominations putting the children in danger. And I just, I love how hyperbolic she is. It's like, no, she, yeah, and, and then they team up like a buddy comedy we're getting in here. Mm-hmm. But I just like that we're out front and center, like, these are ghosts, this is what's happening, like, or, sorry, what I think is happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I want to know what these horrors want. So now we're on a mission to be like, okay, what do we do about these ghosts? How do we appease them? I just, I wasn't expecting this from this movie. And that probably is my naivete about the source material in general, but I just wasn't expecting such explicitness, like, of this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So this is the point where... She has a nightmare, and I fucking love this nightmare. So this is a cross-dissolve. So we're seeing images on top of images on top of things that we've seen before on top of new things that we haven't Mm -hmm. seen before. It is glorious. It is so just evocative. Like, it it really sets a certain tone and atmosphere. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of this nightmare, this is where Miss Giddens is like, okay, I'm going to go to London. I'm going to speak to the uncle. Like, this house is poisoned. We can't allow this to continue. So, <laughs> uh, Also, sorry, I, I do have the quote for what the fucking was. Rooms used by daylight as though they were the dark woods. <laughs> they were fucking. <laughs> because apparently in this time period, people would go to the, to woods, the woods to fuck. <laughs> and so they used the rooms as if they were the dark woods. <laughs> wow. Okay. You go, British people, with your, your funky woods fucking. 
but that's that literary like dialogue, right? Like, oh, we're, sure. oh re- read between the lines, except now we have to listen between the words. I just love the the idea that it's like things that happen in the dark happening in the light rooms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Scandalous. <sighs> so yes, she wants to go tell this uncle stuff. Yes, um, but then she has like the moment, the most important moment in the film, depending on how you want to read it. She's in the classroom, and this is where she sees Miss Jessel, and you know she kind of figures out that Jessel and Quint are trying to possess the children, but she sees this tear on the chalkboard. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that she's not hallucinating this, then this is confirmation that there are indeed ghosts. See, though, I, I don't understand how a tear makes a difference. Like, she's been seeing ghosts this entire time. She touches it physically, though. She sees the moisture on her finger. I mean, yeah, sure. But, like, she sees it. She feels it. But I don't know. I Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> clearly you have never seen something that is not there compared to like touch I mean, something that is not there <laughs> next time i do a hallucinogen i'll see if i can touch something that's not there and if i actually feel it <laughs> okay good good I'll report let you back know. on that yeah <laughs> if it's a tortoise don't put it under the water please oh god i think a tortoise would like freak you out if you if you were just like on shrooms walking around and just saw a tortoise i don't think that'd be very fun I'm just imagining how, like, the spider at the end of Enemy, where you're like, oh, is that a spider? Oh, my God, that spider is <gasps> oh my the God. size of the room. <laughs> Stuff of nightmares. I hate that scene. <laughs> it's like the last shot of the movie. <laughs> I know. Okay, so because of this moment, though, she now realizes, Miss Giddens realizes, that she can't leave the children. So she has to stay in the manor, and she will just write to the uncle instead. <laughs> like, she is making some massive statements like i love the fact that she says oh yeah they're definitely trying to possess these kids and i thought bitch where did you get this from you are making shit up mm-hmm. 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 and also not really following through she's not good at following through on shit like oh no. she's finding excuses not mm-hmm. to do things and it's like... well she's finding excuses that keep her close to the kids mm-hmm. exactly exactly which is worrying <laughs> <laughs> she should not be trusted with these kids anymore that dry badge it's calling her name oh my god <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen white chicks i have yes is that scene where he's like your vagina is like a dusty old cloud he like he like poofs uh baby powder out of his hand <laughs> no not ringing, a, not ringing a bell <laughs> It's been a while, but <laughs> I mean, part of me is just like, oh, I can't imagine that that movie has aged any better than Scary Movie 2. I'm sure it has not, but it's still funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is where she prays by the firelight, and then she hears laughter and talking, so she explores with a very, very dim candlelight. This is reminiscent of both Diabolique and The Haunting, which, I mean, granted, this comes after Diabolique, comes before The Haunting, but I love a good lady walking around with a candlestick. Yeah, so this for me is where the film reaches its peak of scariness and atmosphere and tension, because I just love the way the the visuals mix with the oral, because, you know, it it culminates with all of these voices yelling at her to Mm -hmm. knock before Mm -hmm. you enter, and I just think it's so good. Well, because it's it's meant to be, yeah, it's meant to be Quint and Jessel, like, telling the kids, knock before you enter, because we Mm got to put our clothes back on, (laughs) because we're doing the dirty deed. Indeed. And yeah, then it culminates with this scream. I wrote my notes, so this is pretty cool. Yeah. And yeah, then we get this, (laughs) that's it. That's it. This is cool, eh? (laughs) 
but yeah, then we get this scream. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's it's good. It's real good. Yeah, so she ends up going back to her room, but this is where she finds Miles sleepwalking in the garden. So she goes down, she puts him to bed, and as she's settling him in, he reaches up and he plants a big old wet one on her lips. Okay, so yeah, I got first of all, he, he's got this know-it-all mansplaining attitude about himself. He goes, mm-hmm. are you cross? I thought you would be. It's like... I wrote my notes at this point. God, this kid sucks. Oh, yeah. I thought it would be so charming to take off my <laughs> shoes and socks and just walk barefoot outside. Uh, um, <laughs> he, he's got the pigeon with a broken neck under his pillow. So he's, he's got serial killer stuff like mm-hmm. under his pillow. And then, yeah, this kiss. I, mm, 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 And it's a close-up shot of their lips locking. It is uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, by design, obviously. Oh, yeah. But I think really, again, if you're reading into the idea that he is possessed, it's like, this is a grown-ass man who is fucking with this woman. Yeah. yeah I mean, either a grown-ass man or a really... Or a, or a young child is fucking with horrible this woman. child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the next day, Flora dances off by herself to uh, hang out by the lake, and there's a storm building. So Miss Giddens... At this point, she's like, you know what, if I can get the kids to say the names of the people who are trying to possess them, then that will break the spell. Again, where did you pull the shit out of, lady? (laughs) She just knows. And all that time she spent not fucking, she was researching ghosts. I guess so. I mean, there's probably a library at Bly that we never see that she's maybe doing ghostly research in. Oh, yeah. I love a good mansion library. Right? Ugh. Don't you just want that Beauty of the Beast library for yourself? A hundred percent. If I need a ladder to get to the top <laughs> shelf, I have life goals unlocked. Uh, yes. I want a ladder. I want to ha- I want to need a ladder to reach a book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or like a second story walkway. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my, oh, yes, a balcony. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this is where we once again see Miss Jessel out in the lake and Miss Giddens says... Bitch, tell me that you see this woman. And Flora's like, I can't. And Miss Giddens just berates her until Flora starts crying and screaming, and Mrs. Gross just takes her away. This is also this also made me very uncomfortable because yeah, like she is like holding this child, like, tell me you see this bitch across the water, bitch. And <laughs> bitch. And yeah, Fl- Flora is not having it. She's freaking out. She's calling her cruel, hateful, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot. It's very torturous, but I think at this point, it's really, it's the breaking point. Like, Miss Giddens has crossed the point of no return. Yeah, no, you're you're 100% right. I would still have thrown Flora in the water and had her drown, but... <laughs> oh my god. Nevertheless, that does not, that's not, that's not what happens. <laughs> I do love that, you know, we talked about whether or not the kids had already been traumatized by maybe seeing some, some sling woods sex acts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But clearly we know that this has had an impact on Flora because into the night she is still screaming and crying. Yeah, is it is intense. Yeah. This is the point where Brian turned around at his computer and said, what is happening over there? Stupid children. Yeah, I was basically like, uh, uh she got yelled at. <laughs> She's rich and spoiled and got yelled at and she didn't like it. Basically. So this is when Mrs. Gross kind of turns against her. So this is a change for the film. It Apparently in the novella, they're always on the same side. Once Mrs. Uh... Gross is convinced she's on her side the whole duration. Whereas here it's like, no, we need a little bit more conflict. So 
Mrs. Gross questions the changes in Flora's behavior and says, well, she wasn't like this until you arrived. And Miss Giddens is then like, oh, I can't believe you're turning against me. I'm trying to protect the children. Well, and this is when she tells her, like, because Giddens goes, well, you pretend not to see her too. She goes, I didn't pretend. I didn't see that bitch across the water. <laughs> yes. Don't you love how they, they're all of a sudden talking in contemporary slang? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Remake the innocence, but use our dialogue. I didn't see that bitch in the water. <laughs> I do, there's one line which I'm actually going to start stealing for my own personal use, is when Ooh. Giddens asks her, like, do you judge me? And she goes, I can't judge you, miss. A body can only judge themselves. And that is real good advice for everyone. Yeah, it's pretty sage advice. I mean, we talked about how Mrs. Gross is not the most interesting character, but she's actually pretty wise and calm. She is a force of good in this movie, which is why it's important that Miss Giddens is like, you need to get the fuck out. I'm in charge and you're leaving tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna leave me alone with this child that I have already had a very long kiss with and we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because a part of me likes this moment where she decides to stand up for herself and claim that agency where she oh, says, yeah. I am the sole person in charge. I was left the sole person in charge. Yeah. I like this character. I empathize with this character. I wish she made better decisions sometimes. Oh, God, but... she's a hot mess. Yeah. Yeah, she, she's, she's a mess. But I like her. <laughs> I want to like her. Yes. <laughs> All right. So in the morning, yes, this is when Mrs. Gross imparts that advice. And then she leaves with Flora and all of the rest of the servants have been dismissed. So it is just Miss Giddens and Miles. Miles has left. He will come back. And I think she even says that he will find his way back to me. Um, yeah, we get Miss Giddens, Miles, and this, I want to say, rabbit-shaped jello mold? Um. Did you not? I think I've forgotten that. <laughs> oh my but god. Ew. There is this jello mold in the middle of their tea table, and I swear to god it's rabbit-shaped. Okay, I can believe it. Oh my god. I was like, that's very interesting. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, jello is food, as opposed to dessert, I'm not in favor of. Yeah, nope, I didn't like it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so. <laughs> yeah, okay, so so they go into the solarium, and this is where they really have at it. So she starts <laughs> to ask him questions. She wants to know why he was expelled. She wants to know why he took her letter. She wants to know why he speaks like an adult. And this part is fascinating <laughs> to me because it's, I can't tell if it's a production piece or if it's an accidental, fantastic contribution, but it looks hot as fuck because of the glass. And these two They're actors sweating. are They're sweating. sweating. Yes. No, I caught that too. And I was like, holy. I thought it was maybe just the lights because there were so many. Because lights produce heat. Of course. So I thought yeah. maybe, maybe like, because if you're in a stage play, like you, you have all the lights on you, you are sweating. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe that was the case, but it seemed very deliberate. It did. It's so obvious that I couldn't imagine that even back in 61, they wouldn't have realized like, uh, we need makeup, we need to dab them. And part of me was like, oh, it's like a, a visual reinforcement of how the temperatures are literally rising as these two go at it. Mm -hmm. So this is the moment where he calls her a hussy and a hag. Oh, no, it is a damned hussy, a damned dirty minded hag. I was like, oh, clutching my pearls. It's good. And coming out of the mouth of a child, he's 10 years well, old. And he looks so sinister saying yes. this. Yeah. And again, it's like, is this just a really bratty child or mm -hmm. is he possessed by Peter Quint? 
Yeah, who is, by the way, literally looking over his shoulder through the glass at this moment. Yes! Oh, it's framed so well. It's so good, yes. But this is basically like we're now into climax proper. So he rushes out and she chases him and he falls on the steps, just like Peter Quint. Mm-hmm. And then this is when Giddens, again, tries to do this demand thing. She wants him to say Quint's name, thinking it will break well, this curse. We haven't even mentioned gaslighting a lot, because again, if we're going under the assumption that she is imagining this, mm-hmm. then this child is at least like gaslighting her for it. But it's one of those things where she's like, say his name, say his name, it'll all be over, because it's for her benefit, not yes. for his benefit. No, she she wants to save this child. She wants to protect him. Well, but again, if he says the name, then she knows I'm not going crazy. I was right. I mean, I think if he's playing her, like if he's being a brat, maybe. But I honestly read this as he doesn't know what the fuck is going on because he's not privy to her thought process. So he's just like, she's Uh, chasing me. What do you want from me? So she's insisting, say Peter Quinn's name. He's right up there on top of this statue. Mm, And Miles is like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Got it. Again, I I love that, right? Though you can watch this movie from both. I mean, that, that's what that was Clay, what Clayton wanted. You can watch it from both angles mm-hmm. and it makes sense either way. Yeah. So he eventually does because she's like, say Peter Quint, say Quint. And so he does. And He's then like, he, Peter Quint, oh my God, stop. I, I, just stop it. Oh my God, I'll give you what you want. Quint, Quint. <laughs> and then he faints. And she's like, oh my God, thank God I've done it. I've saved this child. So she's stroking his head. It's all good. Yeah. And then it's like, bitch, his eyes are open and this child is dead. Uh, it's... It's so good. It's such a dark <laughs> ending, too. Like, yeah. I don't even... I will admit, I did know this was gonna... I knew he was gonna die. I didn't know the manner of his death, but I, that's the one thing I know about the story is that Miles dies at the end. Mm. And so I knew that was gonna happen. I just didn't know how. I do love... like it, He yells, 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 and he just stops. Mm-hmm. And he stands there, and the camera holds on his face for, I want to say, at least five seconds. And yeah. we're just sitting there watching his, like, emotionless... Yeah, we're waiting for something to happen. And he just collapses. Yeah. And it's a good, like, 15 seconds of her stroking his hair. Mm-hmm. Not as, I was about to say stroking him. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. As we're just like, um, is someone going to tell her? He's dead. He's so dead. <laughs> and the second she realizes it, it's soul crushing because oh, she's is. like, it, it, she realizes what's happened. Mm-hmm. And then she just, what does she do, Joe? She screams his name. My eyes! Mm-hmm. And then she kisses his corpse. Yeah. And the birds are chirping like it's just a happy day. And it's that return back to the beginning. So as we fade to black, the birds are chirping and the credits start to roll. But it looks identical to how the film began. You're just like, so did she save him? Was she so, crazy? This is the Capote ending, the original ending for this film. There's a montage of images superimposed over Miss Giddens's reclining figure. The cracked photograph of Quint, Quint on the tower, Flora's hand holding her pet tortoise, a musical box trilling Oh Willow Wally. Mm-hmm. The dream ends with Miss Giddens imagining how the children have been possessed by Miss Jessel, dancing in silhouette with Flora. Quint putting a possessive arm over Miles' shoulder, and Miss Giddens herself praying for deliverance to the sound of a chiming clock. Hmm. I don't want to say that sounds heavy-handed, but that seems like it's really guiding you to one position. Well, that's exactly it. And that's what Clayton was like, I don't want this. I want something that's more ambiguous, which is why Capote did off with that and had this ending. Right. Honestly, I fucking love this ending. 
I think it's really powerful without doing much. Like it's, it's literally just a kid fainting and then it turns out that he's dead, but it leaves you with so many questions and like, Mm -hmm. it really makes you ask, okay, how do you read this film? Is she a sympathetic figure or did she just murder this child because she, yeah, because of her repressed sexuality and her religious madness. She didn't murder him. He die i don't she know drove how he him died. to this trace yeah but like okay but like what, what the fuck did she do to make him die of fright i, I guess maybe um i guess then it is her fault but <laughs> <laughs> yes that's what i'm saying i mean yeah, i say it's a ballsy ending because oh we end with this dead kid but again that's how the novella ends but right. you, i feel like typically you'd be like uh we gotta cheer this up a little bit for the crowd exactly yeah or or even punish her right like oh the end of the movie is her getting locked up but no and that's where we differ from Rebecca because we don't have the haze, uh, we don't have the code of the, whatever the fuck that was that made them change Maxim's murder of Rebecca. Oh so we at least get this. There's no comeuppance for Miss Skiddens, and the kid is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the movie is over. That's it. Yeah, it, it is a tight hundred minutes. Like I want to say, it gets in and out. I, I do think that it's not perfectly paced for me. Like I do think it drags in places, but mm-hmm. I still really like this. And yeah, it's it's another one of those films where it's like the more you read about the work that had to go into it and all the techniques they did and what was intended and blah 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 blah, mm-hmm. it really does make me at least like respect the film and view it on a different level. Right, and also even just thinking this is a movie with four characters and like a couple of hauntings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's so simple, but so elegantly crafted and just well done. I'm so happy that we watched it because I feel like I was just putting it off because I wasn't in the mood for something like this. And now I'm like, oh, I get it. I understand why it has the reputation it has. That's one thing I like about doing this podcast is it does force me to see some things that I wouldn't have just put on otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it also makes me research them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I do think if you just went into this one, you'd be like, yeah, it's fine. Well, I think that's like, okay, it's on list. Oh, it's one of the greatest horror films ever made. That puts certain expectations on modern viewers when watching a film. Because they're like, oh, if it stands out among the pack, it must be maybe more modern-ish. It resembles modern films because it's going to give me more thrills and stuff. And that's not really what this film does. No. No, this film will unsettle you. It'll creep you out. But more than anything, I think it just makes you question, like, can you trust what you're seeing if what we're seeing is through the perspective of somebody that is unreliable? And I love an unreliable narrator. Well, yeah, lead character. I would say, yeah, if if we are seeing everything essentially from a character's POV, they're the narrator, even if they're not actually narrating the events. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I really, really enjoyed this and I'm glad we got to cover it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. And, of course, join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. You can also find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we have covered, be it main feed, micro queers, Patreon films, Patreon audio commentaries. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the whole kit and caboodle. And, finally, we've also got a YouTube channel because, everyone, Joe and I have started recording ourselves doing our micro queers episode. So, if you want to watch the short go ahead and then go watch us talk about it instead of listen to us talk about it. Or do both, because you're actually getting the unedited version on YouTube, which means more stupidness. Yeah, we have a lot of mistakes. Uh, Fire truck, sirens, and things like that. (laughs) Yep. 
But yeah, if you want even more content from us, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. This month, get ready to test your might, as we are going to be covering both the new Mortal Kombat movie with a full-length episode and an audio commentary on Paul W.S. Anderson's original 1995 Mortal Kombat film. And to fit into our apparent video game movie theme month, we are also going to be covering Anderson's latest video game adaptation, Monster Hunter, which is surprisingly or unsurprisingly, depending on how you feel about his films, super fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll also have minisodes on jump scares and our favorite horror films from South by Southwest. So yeah, fun April for Patreon. But Joe, mm-hmm. what are we going to be talking about next week? All right. Well, we have technically missed its 30th anniversary, but I am feeling like having an old friend for dinner, Trace. So we're going to touch on arguably one of the most critically celebrated films to come out of the horror canon. We're going to be talking about The Silence of the Lambs. I just revisited this early this year, and so I'm excited to watch it again because I love this movie. But I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Yes, yes. This may end up being one of those unconventional episodes where we don't just do the plot, because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And ideally, everyone's seen the film, so hopefully that's the case. But yeah, I guess uh, until then, we can cross out the innocents. Yes, and cross out horror queers. You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 